turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And here we have uh, the words of Jesus or the, the activity of Jesus recorded for us concerning uh, his, his encounter with a rich young man. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 17 of chapter 10. And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. And he said to him, well, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus, Jesus felt love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. But at these words, his countenance fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word to the disciples and to this young man. And we recognize that there's a lot there that we personally need to process. And we really need your help in doing that. 
And so we pray this morning that by your spirit, you would speak to us. Lord, it's, it's your voice that we want to hear. It's your instruction that we need. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see that which you have laid out before us. In your name we pray, amen. Wow, that's a lot to digest, isn't it? Looking at verse 17, um, we see that this young man ran up to Jesus. It's, and, and he's a rich young man, according to the scripture. It's curious that, that uh, well, it's in stark contrast to the passage immediately preceding this passage of scripture. Take a look at that, would you? Who is Jesus talking about previously? Who is it that he says can enter the kingdom of God just before this? Children, right. Children, children who, who perhaps have no means of their own, children who are, are vulnerable, children that do not have power or prestige. And Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to them. And then we have this encounter with this, this young man who, quite honestly, was the picture of power and prestige in his day. It's, Jesus doesn't underestimate the, the value of contrast. Contrast is a great teaching tool. And it's interesting that in each of the Gospels, um, this contrast takes place. There's, uh, with, with the exception of John, this, this, this passage is paralleled in Matthew and Luke as well. And the chronology of it is also in, that, in those books or in those Gospels. Uh, now, it's logical to, to assume or to recognize that this young man that comes and greets Jesus in this way is Jewish. How do we know that? Well, he knew the law, right? Jesus, Jesus asked him about that, and, and we know that he understood that because he spoke, quite honestly, quite proudly about the fact that he had kept these commandments more than likely, he grew up hearing these commandments, and he went to synagogue and, uh, and was involved in temple services. It was a reminder every day and every week for him, reinforced over and over. We see, however, that he was rich. It's interesting that, that uh, that's brought out here, and it's Quite, quite for certain that, that it's understood that being rich and being a Jew in that day and time in Palestine was an anomaly. This was not a, a common thing. Most of the Jews had been, had, they had been devastated by the rule of the Romans and the, the Herod, the, 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 uh, the magistrates of that area. Historically, the Jews uh, under Mosaic law 
owned property, and they were, they were given the responsibility of cultivating that property and being, being uh, faithful to even bring a tithe from, from, the, from the produce of their property. But here now, we see that Palestine is under military occupation by the Romans. And tyrannical rulers were set above them we know that Herod, that now Herod is a, is a title that, that was belonged to a number of different people. And progressively, they took property away from the Jews. In fact, they seized the property as the quote unquote government officials illegally possessed it. And, and as a result, brought the Jewish people to a place of destitution. However, there were certain Jews that were included in that government uh, process, that government scam, if you will. The deal is this, that they, there were certain Jews that were complicit with the illegitimate rule of, of Herod and the Romans. You may remember Matthew. Matthew, the, the, the disciple of Jesus. Do you remember what his profession was? Yeah, he was a tax collector. How did that work? Well, he was complicit with, with that tyrannical rule. And some others were as well. And they, they became, uh, they, they actually uh, didn't lose their property, but rather became beholden to the, uh, the, the government officials. And, and so that is, that's the context that we're looking at. It's interesting that Luke actually calls him a ruler as well. And that implies the fact that he may have very well been um, a respected member of the Sanhedrin, perhaps. Maybe a, a chief official in the synagogue. Matthew and Mark note that he owned a lot of property. And Luke says he was extreme rich. So in that context of that day and time, we... I think we can be pretty certain that there was complicity going on with this young man. And yet, and yet he comes to Jesus and seemingly he comes to Jesus in a genuine sort of way. And he asks, he, he's, he calls Jesus teacher. In fact, he's, it's recorded here in, in Mark that he calls Jesus good teacher. Now the word teacher is it would have been common in that day, known as rabbi. Rabbi Jesus is what he is saying. And, and so in this context, this young man is coming to Jesus, and he is um, he's eager. He's eager to, to know and understand what Jesus would teach him. He ran up to him. He's proactive in seeking out his desires. And he bows down before Jesus in, in the recognition of Jesus' authority. 
And he calls him good teacher, rabbi. And in so doing, he's saying, I'm willing to learn. I want to learn. Stuart Briscoe speaks of the fact that he was rich and young and powerful. And he says, most of us would succumb to the temptation of having too much too soon. We've seen that, right? Many people who have too much too soon in their life. But wealth did not seem to undermine his virtue. And power did not smother his respect for authority. He can still kneel before a master teacher and claim obedience to the law even from the time of his youth. It seems this young man was full, he was full of zeal. He had the trappings of financial prosperity and political privilege and, and even, even religious knowledge. But still he knows that there's, he's missing something. There's something more that he needs. There's an empty spot in his life, and he longs for that spiritual satisfaction and the assurance of eternal life. So running and bowing and flattering Jesus and deferring to him, he asks, what shall I do to in inherit eternal life? It's the right question. It's the right question, but it's the wrong assumption. First, he assumes that goodness can be achieved. He asked, what shall I do? And Jesus, Jesus rebuffs that idea right away. Good, he says, good teacher, what shall I do? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And Jesus is pointing out the fact that goodness, goodness is not something that can be earned. It is part and parcel of God's character. It's God's character, not something that a human can actually earn. Now, <laughs> this is where skeptics um, attempt to question the character of God. Have you ever heard someone say, well, this bad thing happened. How can a God who is good allow that bad thing to happen? And, and it's interesting because in that context, they're, they're acknowledging that God must be sovereign, right? He must be sovereign. So how can he allow these bad things to happen, especially to quote unquote good people? And in that, in that, thought process, they, they try to pigeonhole the fact, the idea that goodness is seen or it's achieved in what you do. No, goodness, according to the scripture, according even to the, the Jewish mindset, is that goodness is rooted in who God is. It's not measured by doing. It's intrinsic to the character of God. Now, some critics also look at this passage and they say, aha, Jesus doesn't think he's God. It says it right here. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Well, the truth is they kind of missed the point. 
They missed the point here. Jesus is responding to the misconception that good is achievable by human effort rather than possessed and given by God's grace. The second assumption is that this young man believes that eternal life can be earned. And Jesus quotes, it's interesting, he doesn't quote all the Ten Commandments. He, he quotes number five through nine. And each of those commandments um, has to do with how we treat our neighbor, how we treat one another. And this young man thinks, oh, well, hey, this is the ticket to heaven right here. He feels, he feels confident. And, and maybe he feels like, oh, I'm on the threshold, I, uh, threshold of assurance that, that I will experience eternal life. But that's really only part of the story. It's not the whole law, is it? It's not even all Ten Commandments. This man, after telling Jesus that, that he's kept the commandments, asks an implied question. He... It, implied in his response is, well, what more do I need to do? Because I, I clearly have this sense of vacuum in my life. I clearly have this sense of, of there must be something more. What more do I need to do? And maybe he's, been, he's looking for a way out of, of the dilemma that he's in. I mean, he's part of the Jewish people and yet he's living a life of privilege while his brethren are living in poverty. He seems to press Jesus. Maybe he's feeling guilty. Maybe he thinks that Jesus will give him a pass. Well, maybe not a pass, but at least a pathway to, to uh, earn his way into heaven by giving to some charity or, or something like that. Verse 21 is really interesting to me. There we read, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him. Looking at him. That word means to fix your gaze upon. Jesus was looking intently at him. He clearly saw that there was something attractive about this young man. <laughs> but not even this one whom the scripture clearly says that he loved. Not even for this one who perhaps Jesus honestly desired that he would come and follow him and be his disciple. Not even for this one would Jesus lower the demands of discipleship just to get an easy convert. It wasn't an arbitrary decision on his part. Whoever wants to follow Jesus must deny himself and take up his cross. Indeed, that's precisely what Jesus said just a couple chapters ago in chapter 8. Look at it with me. Chapter 8, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Jesus says one thing you lack. The word lack there means to be inferior. 
to, to fall short. Have you ever felt that way? Like you just don't measure up. You just fall short and there's nothing you can do about it. I, what's, what's your internal response to that? Some of us might dive into depression. <laughs> I can't measure up, and it's, it's eating me at, from the inside out. Some venture into that place of despair. Some would, would respond, well, if I can't measure up on your scale, I'll just go to a different scale. And maybe it's even anger. How dare you? How dare you tell me that I don't measure up? And we get blustery about it. It's interesting that Jesus says one thing you lack. That word seems to probe to a deeper level. Jesus is seeking to bring home to him that in spite of and even perhaps even because of his wealth, he had a great unseen need. And it was hidden right there in plain sight in the middle of his wealth. Jesus diagnoses the young man's need. One thing you lack, and he prescribes a remedy. Go your way, sell what you have, and give to the poor. And then he promises a reward and you will have treasure in heaven. And then he puts out the challenge. Come and follow me. If he wanted, if this young man wanted to have this need met that he felt that he had, he had to show his love for God in a very concrete manner. He had to show that that his love for God surpassed everything else in his life in a very tangible way. Some would say this is a difficult test, a really difficult test of love and loyalty. But it's interesting to me that uh, Jesus doesn't just give the test. He reaches back out to this young man. He knows what he's saying is difficult for him to hear. And he reaches out to the young man and he offers two assurances. First, he offers substitution. Go give all that you have to the poor because you will have great treasure in heaven. That's the exchange. He's reaching back and saying, hey, this, I know this is hard, but here's the opportunity. It will be great for you in heaven. There will be much treasure there. And secondly, he offers this young man membership, membership in this messianic company that Jesus is leading. He says, come and follow me. He invites this young man to give away what he values most and follow him. Now, Jesus is a rabbi, and rabbis had followers. Rabbis had 
people who became their disciples, they left all their pursuits and followed to learn from this rabbi. And Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is reaching back out and saying, here's a full ride scholarship. You can come and study with me. What a great exchange. The promise of eternal life is found both in the giving and the going. The full divestment of his primary affection to enable full investment in a new direction. The yielding of all that he owned to the poor so that he might be completely owned by Jesus. Now, with this, this is Jesus responding in love. But that word of truth that's spoken in great love, honestly, it seems to shatter the high hopes of this young man. You ever had your bubble burst? That's what's going on here. All of the assumptions are brought into clear view that they are off the mark. The third assumption that this young man has is that everything can be bought for a price. Even eternal life. But Jesus teaches him this basic lesson in economics that price, price and cost are not the same thing. Price is written down in dollars. It's, it's what's hanging on the tag. But cost, cost is spelled out in values. No price tag can be put on eternal life, but but it does have what economists call the cost of opportunity. Every time, every time we buy something, we are asking, what am I willing to sacrifice to gain the opportunity or gain this opportunity that's right in front of me? For the poor man, it might be, what am I willing to sacrifice for a loaf of bread? What is the cost of the opportunity to have a full meal? Maybe, it, maybe it's the selling of his shoes. I don't know. For, for a wealthy man, it might be, uh, or woman, it might be the investment of a new enterprise. Uh, the investment of this new enterprise to expand this business that, that they preside over. There's a cost involved for the benefit that they hope to gain. And Jesus applies this principle of the cost of opportunity to the value of eternal life. In other words, eternal life is a value that cannot be bought, but it costs everything. Now, at these words the young man is crestfallen. He's, 
He's saddened. And he, the scripture says he went away grieving. The young man was in turmoil. I mean, he could feel that Jesus loved him, yet he couldn't bring himself to give up the security of his riches. And Jesus, Jesus would not compromise this law of love. You see, loving God means that he is preeminent. He is preeminent in our lives. And nothing else, nothing else competes with him. Loving God is more than feelings of devotion here. It is, it is the concrete action of obedience. And the rich young ruler made his decision. And sadly, he walked away. You know, this is the only man in all of the New Testament who walked away sorrowful after being in the presence of Jesus. Many came to him in a sorrowful state, but they left, they left fulfilled. They left with joy. Apart from renouncing his wealth, there was no other way no other way for this young man to be in the company of Jesus. If he could not give up his wealth, by definition, he could not be a disciple of Jesus. In chapter 8 of Mark, Jesus, uh, we, we read, Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And this, this young man's reaction shows only too clearly that Jesus, Jesus honestly had laid his finger right on the spot, the thing, the very thing that was holding this young man back from the kingdom of God. Otherwise, otherwise he would have just, he would have freely given it up. And then verse 23, Jesus looks around and he says to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed. And, and Jesus reiterates it. He said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were, they were even more astonished that Jesus would reiterate that, that thing. And, and the response was, how then, how then can we be saved? The literal translation of how hard it is it is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, the literal translation of that is how hard it is for those who have things. In the vernacular, how hard it is for those who have stuff. How many of you have been through the discipline of downsizing? 
<laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Wow. It's, it's not so hard on the stuff that we don't really value, right? Yeah, let's have a garage sale. Let's purge, right? But the stuff that you really value, it's hard to downsize. It's hard to let those things go because those things have a grip on us. And sometimes they occupy, they occupy that preeminent place in our lives. And these gadgets, these things that we fill our lives with, sometimes they easily become barriers to our entrance into the kingdom of God, into the things that Jesus wants to reveal to us. Jesus doesn't soft sell the truth here. He reverses the expectations, the rewards, and the values of wealth, which quite honestly, in that culture and in our culture today, have become confused with spirituality. You see, you see, wealth in the New Testament, wealth itself is not seen as necessarily sinful. But it is seen as dangerous. There's a great responsibility given to those who have wealth. And it's important to understand that money itself, money itself is not the problem, but it's the love of money that's the issue. It's, it's, it's not so much about what you own, but what owns you. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the face, faith and pierced themselves pierced themselves with many griefs. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You see, there in Hebrews, we see that the collection of things, how many of us operate as though that's our security. What we have. What if I don't have that? We suddenly feel insecure. No, this, our security rests in Christ and he will never leave us or forsake us. Now, Jesus doesn't accuse this young man of, of acquiring his wealth at the expense of the poor like, a, for instance, a tax collector would. But in the context of the first century there in Palestine, quite honestly, the, the circumstances are suspicious. To the Jew of the Old Testament, honestly gained riches were a sign of God's blessing. 
We see that throughout the Old Testament. Many of our heroes of faith are are very, very wealthy, right? And we see there that that wealth is the expression of God's blessing. But we cannot allow this to be exaggerated into the cult of prosperity. You see, Jesus, Jesus turns that on its head and says, no, they're the poor. It's the poor that are often equated with the righteous. The first beatitude there in Matthew chapter 5, what do we read? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. And the words in spirit, some would say that wasn't in the original language. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the poor know their need. They know their need. And the rich young ruler was clueless. He did not know his need because it was hidden. It was hidden in the middle of his wealth. And Jesus reduces the expectations attached to wealth. Jewish law and its interpretations made wealth a sign of God's special favor and qualification for spirituality. True piety, according to the Jews, consisted of practicing prayer and fasting and almsgiving. But poverty-stricken people, yeah, they could pray, but only rich people could fast because they were the only ones who had food to fast from. And they were the only ones who had money to give. The economics of the Jews, wealth was, had become the stuff out of which spirituality made, is made. But putting spirituality and wealth together, it may, it may communicate to them that, hey, that's the easy way to get into heaven. But Jesus turns that false expectation completely upside down. So what are we to do with this? Well, first of all, let me say that if we, if our honest desire is to experience higher heights of spirituality or deeper depths of understanding, this is what we can expect. We can expect that Jesus will take us, he will take us to the place where the depth of our desire meets the limits of our letting go. Let me say that again. We can expect that Jesus, if we desire to go deeper with him, we can expect that he will take us to the very place where the depth of our desire meets our ability to let go. Verse 24, the the disciples were amazed at what they heard. They, They assumed, I think apparently, that uh, along with other Jews and that, um, that the wealthy were blessed by God and surely it would be easier for them to get into the kingdom of heaven. 
But discipleship makes everyone equal. No one starts with with the balance loaded in their favor. When it comes to the entry into the kingdom of God, only the humble, only the little ones find entry. And riches, quite honestly, become a stumbling block and sometimes even a barrier. And there's a problem here at a deeper level. I think that the, the, the disciples' response is indicative of the fact that they recognize that, hey, if it's hard for the rich to get in, it's hard for everyone. And we're all rich in something. Verse 25 is interesting. A lot of people like to play around with the words that are there in the, in the uh, original Koine Greek. Um, the word that's translated camel also sounds like the word rope in, in Greek. The, the Jewish word for camel and the Greek word for rope. How can you get a rope through a, the eye of a needle? And, and the needle is sometimes talked about as being a small gate in the wall of a city. That's okay. We can, we can talk about all of those semantics, but the reality is, is what Jesus is saying is, dude, it's impossible. It's impossible. Hmm. And so the disciples kind of throw their hands up and say, well, (laughs) then who can be saved? And looking at them, verse 27, look at that. Looking at them. My sense is that Jesus was looking at them the same way he was looking at the rich young man. He was loving them. And looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Yes, yes, it's... (laughs) The reality is, it's not only hard to be saved, it's impossible. But that's where God steps in. God steps in and does the impossible. That's who he is. It's the hallmark of his character. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm not going to read it all, but but the Apostle Paul uh, says there, verses 26 through 31, hey, God is about taking that which is nothing and making something out of it. It, He is about about taking that which is foolish and making it wise. He does the impossible thing for the sake that no person can boast in their own capability. Peter says to, to Jesus then, well, Lord, we've left everything. We've left everything and followed you. And verse 29, Jesus says, truly I say to you. In other words, take stock in this. Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left all these things who will not receive a hundred times as much now in this age and also in the age to come eternal life. 
You see, the disciples can't forget the fact that they left their nets. They left their livelihood. They're on the beach on the Sea of Galilee. They left it all to follow Jesus. And Jesus reassures his disciples, take stock in this. Truly, I say to you, your sacrifice will not be overlooked. Your sacrifice will not be overlooked. Now, there is great cost in following Jesus, but the reward is great. And that's fundamentally the hope of the disciples. Now, it's interesting to, however, that in there in verse 30, we see that contrary to the systems of, of rewards that we're familiar with, Jesus also includes the word persecutions. Persecution as a benefit as a spiritual value. Is it strange? Well, it's certainly consistent. Again, Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus closes, so many who are first will be last. And the last first. You see, God doesn't see like we see. The rich man may be first in this world, but the disciples who've given up everything to follow Jesus, they're going to be first in the world to come. And the rich man will be last. So what do we do with that? What do we do with this, this passage of Scripture that is, I mean, every single one of us in this room, we bear the benefits of wealth, do we not? The fact that we are living in this country that, and, and just compared to the rest of the world, we're as wealthy as wealthy can be. And, but we all fall into this place the very same place, that if we want to go deeper with God, if we want the assurance of, of life eternal with him, he's going to touch that spot that says, you got to give it all. We sang, I surrender just a little bit ago. And perhaps you've, you've sung the, the hymn, I surrender all with, with affection in the past. And it's a good feeling. I surrender all. But when it comes down to the reality of it, Jesus is looking for concrete evidence of that. And we come face to face with that every day. The blessed thing is that when Jesus lays out that kind of requirement, he also reaches out to us and says, this is not a square trade deal. I'm giving you much, much more in return. Surrender all means that Jesus himself says, you will have treasure in heaven. Would you stand with me? 
Jesus, we thank you this morning for the fact that you are a gracious teacher. Yes, you do not mince words. It is true that we have been faced with with the uncomfortable reality of where we are and what we have and the, the very distinct command that if we want to follow you, we must surrender it all. But we thank you, Lord, that in your graciousness, you also provide for us assurance. Assurance that our life will be eternal with you in heaven and that there will indeed be treasures there for us. Not so much the things that we are attached to, but Lord, the things that really matter. So this morning, we pray that that even as we leave this place, you would continue to speak to us. And Lord, we pray that you would find us to be the people who are ready to say, I surrender. And then, Lord, that you would reassure us that the reward waiting in heaven is way beyond way beyond the sacrifice that we yield to you here on earth. There's much that needs to be worked out here, God. We recognize that, but we trust you because you are implicitly good. It's who you are. And we pray that in your goodness, you would, yes, bring us to this place that we would be among those who follow you regardless of the cost. We thank you for your grace in that, for your enduring mercy. Yes. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. That means to smile upon you and give you his certain, undeniable, absolute shalom, his peace that passes understanding in every respect. Amen and amen.